You're listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. Today's message from Pastor Colt Hudson is part of our current sermon series through the Gospel of John. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you. Thanks for listening. Hey man, it's so good to be with you today. If you will, go ahead and be turning in your Bibles to John chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 40 through 52. Again, that is John chapter 7, verses 40 through 52. And today we're going to be looking at a message that is titled, Understanding Division. The subject of our study today will be that of division. And if we have had any sort of experience in the world, then we know that people can get divided up over some pretty silly things. I read a story this week of uh, George Whitfield, and uh, he was a famous preacher. He gets in a stagecoach, and he's seeking to travel, and there's a woman sitting inside the stagecoach. And this woman who's sitting in there, she looks at him, and she says, Are you George Whitfield? He replied, Yes. She said, Well, in that case, I'm getting out. He said, okay, but let me ask you a question, ma'am. He says, suppose you die and go to heaven, and then suppose I die and go there also. When I come in, will you go out? The woman decided to stay on the stagecoach. You see, we can get divided over petty personal matters, and we can also be divided over legitimate issues of truth. There are different areas and, and angles of division. And, and so what I want us to understand is that there are legitimate times for us to be divided and to be separate from other groups of people. Specifically, uh, one of the ways that we think about this is uh, in terms of our doctrine. Doctrine does divide us in the sense that we are Baptist for a reason. There's a reason that we attend a Baptist church. We have shared convictions which separate us from those around us. However, there is also this type of division that comes as a result of sin and a lack of understanding in God's word. There is division that comes and, and it, it seeks and rears its head as sinful fighting and, and, and frustration and friction that is unfounded and unbiblical. And so what we'll see today is that we're going to be learning from a passage that deals with division and specifically division that comes as a result of sin and a lack of biblical understanding. So let's look at John chapter 7, verses 40 through 52. I'm reading from the ESV, but you follow along in your translation. In verse 40, it tells us, When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, once more we come before you today, and Lord, we come thanking you for your tremendous grace and mercy to us. 
Father, we thank you for uh, the ability to gather here together. And Lord, we thank you for this gathering so far today, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity to sing your praises, Lord, to gather freely, Lord, to give towards your kingdom. And Lord, we thank you now for the opportunity to hear from your word. Father, we pray that you would uh, deal mercifully with us, Lord, that you would be gracious to us through this time, that everything we do and everything we say would be for your honor and your glory. Lord, we pray that you would equip us for the task ahead of us, that you would encourage us amidst this dark world, and Lord, that you would convict us of where we have fallen short. Father, today we pray that you would use this time, Lord, to strengthen us, that we may go and faithfully do your will, that, Lord, we may go and faithfully live as believers, Lord, that would be pleasing to you. So, Father, during this time, we ask that your will would be done, that you would lead and direct this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been with us over the last several weeks, you know that we've been looking at uh, specifically this uh, story of Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. That's what we've been dealing with over the last few weeks. And if you haven't been with us, I'd encourage you to to go back and and check some of those sermons out. Uh, But we've seen here specifically at this feast, it has already been shown that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies about the Messiah. He is the Messiah. And throughout the Gospel of John, what we have seen is that uh, from all of the miracles, the healings, the teachings, the demonstrations of his sovereignty throughout the Gospel, it ought to be abundantly obvious that Jesus is the Messiah, right? It should be clear. And verily, for those of us who are believers today, we look at this and we say, man, it is clear. Jesus is the Messiah. It's obvious. What are these people not getting? But we see in today's text as well that some of the ones, as well as some of the ones we've looked at recently, that the people are divided about who Jesus is. Remember this over our last few texts as well. Some of them have believed, some of them have reacted violently toward Jesus, and again, we look at the teaching and the works of Jesus and we say, this is so clear, how can they miss it? But we must remember that their depravity has blinded them. And so what I want to do today is just show you from this text some contributing factors to the division of the people. Before we do, though, I want you to remember that the goal uh, of unity, and specifically as we use these terms of division today, The goal for our life and our relationships with people is not a lack of division. All of the people in this text today, they could have been united in thinking that Jesus was not the Messiah. right? They could have all been in agreement that Jesus wasn't the Messiah and they would have all gotten along, they wouldn't have fought amongst themselves, but that is not the goal. Because it benefits us nothing if we all get along but we're not saved by God's grace. The goal is unity in Christ, unity in the gospel, unity in what the Bible has told us. The gospel brings us all together on a level playing field as desperately hopeless sinners saved by the grace of God through the blood of Christ. Unity without truth means nothing. So when we look at these causes of division today, really what we are looking at are causes of division over Christ and causes of division over what he has called us to do. And so what we see here is what keeps people from unity in Christ. And again, the obvious answer is sin, and all these things we're looking at today are sinful. But I want to identify these three contributing factors to division as a warning to us on how to prevent division as best as possible, and an encouragement to us to be united in Christ and in his glorious gospel. 
So first of all, this morning, I want you to see that division results from puny spiritual understanding. Puny spiritual understanding. And we see this from verses 40 through 44. Immediately, we see that division is on display. Right? Uh, the, the passage here, it starts off and it says, When they heard these words. Well, what words are they talking about? It's talking about what we looked at last week, what we examined, where Jesus says, whoever believes in me, right, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Where he's saying, if anyone thirsts, let them come to me and drink. Jesus here again talking about salvation and eternal life and the Holy Spirit and all of this beautiful teaching about what salvation looks like and how it affects us. When these people heard those words, some of them say what? This really is the prophet. We see that some others say that it, this is the Christ. Well, what's the difference? For us, we need to understand here, first of all, when they're talking about the prophet, what this is, is it's a reference to a promise of Moses in Deuteronomy 18. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. And so some of the Jews took this to mean that there was a great prophet who was going to uh, be risen up amongst their ranks. And so some of the people here, they believe Jesus to be a great prophet whom Moses was talking about. This is not enough. Others, though, they say he is the Christ, that he is, again, by this recognition that he's the Messiah, they're saying this is the one, right? This is God's son, the one promised to save them from their sins. And finally, there are those who say he cannot be the Christ because the Christ is supposed to come from Bethlehem. Now, we talked about this a little bit before, uh, but their reasoning for Jesus not being the promised Messiah is that he is from Galilee and that the Messiah is supposed to be from Bethlehem. All of this misunderstanding coming from the fact not realizing that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And so what we see here is that the division among the people is really a result of a lack of spiritual understanding. They don't really know what they're talking about. Now granted, the Jews in this time didn't have the Gospels as they were written after Jesus' death. But they had the Old Testament prophecies. They also have a degree of common sense. Think about the things that would have gone on during this time. Not only would they have these Old Testament prophecies speaking of the person who the Messiah would be, right? Giving many clear indicators. But they also would have experienced things and would have remembered well, for instance, Herod having multiple children killed, right? The tons, hundreds, thousands perhaps, of children who were murdered because he was trying to kill the Messiah, who he knew was born in Bethlehem. The wise men had traveled thousands of miles to see the Messiah. When Jesus was still a young boy, he was in the temple sitting among the teachers. And Luke tells us that those in the temple marveled at his understanding and the way that he spoke. Now this same man is performing miracles and he's teaching in such a way that even the soldiers here say, we have never heard a man speak this way. It shouldn't be hard. But there is division. Because these people have a lack of spiritual understanding. Now, we know from 1 Corinthians that the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing, but it should have been obvious, right? Jesus has told them so far where he is from. He's talking about being from the Father. He's addressed this issue before. But once more, we see that the people's focus was limited to physical things and that their spiritual understanding was weak. Now, the word I used is puny. Why? 
What we see here is that these people and their spiritual understanding was so weak that they missed out and misused the prophecies that prove the deity of Christ because of their own theological ignorance. Sadly, the Jews at this feast, they were theologically anemic. Now, theologically anemic people are those that are weak in spiritual understanding. They are malnourished in doctrine. They are starved and lacking in spiritual wisdom and truth. And what we see so often, both in our experiences and in the scriptures, is that these are the kind of people that cause division. They miss out on what should be biblically obvious. Well, how does that happen? Right? How does this happen? How does, and specifically here in, in this text, how does it happen? And how does it happen in so many church situations that we see? It almost always results from apathy, not caring, laziness. And this theological weakness that comes from laziness, it shows up in two ways. First of all, in our personal Bible study, and second of all, in the teaching that we sit under. As a pastor, you get plenty of people who come and, and want to speak to you about how they can have a deep knowledge of the Bible. And it is an excellent goal, right? And when you speak with these people, what you often find out is these people who say that they want to have a deep knowledge of the Bible often don't study it. If we don't care enough to study the Bible and familiarize ourselves with its teachings and root ourselves in its doctrines, then we're going to be theologically and spiritually weak. If we don't put effort into understanding and practicing what the Scripture teaches, then we're not going to grow. You know, I, I was thinking about this yesterday uh, because when we were doing the, the pastor's tournament in the golf uh, fundraiser, I, I realized the question, do you know why I'm bad at golf? It's because I don't study the game, I have no idea what I'm doing wrong half the time, and I don't practice. I cannot expect to be strong and good in that which I do not know and that which I do not practice. We better personally study God's word so that we can know what is true and good and put it into practice and know what is not and seek to avoid it. The second way that this shows up is in sitting under those who don't faithfully teach that which is true. This is where the Jews really get messed up. Right? They did whatever the ruling leaders said. They followed the Pharisees. The Pharisees, for instance, would say jump. The Jews, at least the common Jews, would say how high. And that messed them up, as we'll see in a minute. For us, this is no less important. We need to make sure that the kind of spiritual teaching that we take into our lives is faithful, right? Uh, and, and here I'm not just referring to like local pastor church type thing, but also all the teachers that we listen to. All the people who we take into our lives. And, and sometimes I will tell you that even this, all right, I'm not even when I'm saying this only referring to like TV preachers or radio preachers or famous preachers, but I'm also talking about people who influence you spiritually. We are called as believers to sit under the teaching of those who are faithful. There are a great many false teachers out there. We must be careful who we listen to because if we take in a steady diet of weak teaching that never gives us any meat to chew on, then we're never going to grow. We might like the way it sounds. It might make us feel happy, but we won't grow. 
And by the same token, what we need to recognize, if God forbid we're listening to someone who preaches false doctrine, then we're not only weakened, but we're compromised. And so what we need to do is we need to make sure that we are receiving the spiritual nutrients that we need to grow. Because when the Jews in this text have a puny spiritual understanding, look what happens. We see here in verse 43, it says, So there was a division among the people over him. Now in Greek, the word for division is schisma. And buddy, it is a schism. Usually in this usage, what it means is a violent dissension. Right? We're talking about anger to the point that they're about to come to blows. Now, we cannot coexist with those who disagree over who Christ is, right? We can't. Christ is the Savior, born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He took the punishment we deserved on the cross, died, was buried, rose again on the third day, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And if we put our faith in him by his grace, we're saved. There can be no compromise there. But let me tell you, if we are saved by his grace, we should not be divided, but rather united. And the divisions of the church can always be traced back to a lack of spiritual understanding and a lack of application of the biblical truth. This is not to say that we won't ever have disagreements, but it is to say that if we are truly saved by God's grace, then we will be united by that gospel and our devotion to Christ. When we are puny in our spiritual understanding, it often comes to blows. But when we are strong in our spiritual understanding, then so too are our bonds with one another because we recognize that they are rooted in the gospel. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, we can sometimes fight with one another for what we believe to be the truth and rebuke each other to the face if we think there is an error. But when it comes to Christ and his dear cross, give me your hand, brother. You are washed in the blood, so am I. You are resting in Christ, so am I. You have put all your hope in Jesus, and that is where all my hope is. Therefore, we are one. There is no real division among the true people of God because of Christ. So for us, in order to avoid division, we must be careful to cultivate spiritual strength, to know the word and the doctrines therein well, to know what God has said and what he requires. We should be spiritually strong in our understanding, and we should only sit under that teaching that is spiritually strong and faithful. Because when our vision is limited because of our poor spiritual understanding, we don't see What's actually happening? Friends, be spiritually strong. Study the word. Sit under good teaching. The second thing I want you to see here, and the second contributing factor to any source of division, is a poor standard of truth. You see this in verses 45 through 49. A poor standard of truth. What happens here? Well, the officers come to the Pharisees, and, they, and the Pharisees want to know, why did you not arrest him? Why didn't you take Jesus? And what is the guard's response? No one ever spoke like this man. What's interesting here is the phrasing in the Greek, because the guards are essentially saying, uh, no man can speak like this. And the implication here is that to the guards, they're saying and recognizing that obviously Jesus is more than a man because no man can talk like he's talking. No man can impart spiritual wisdom like he is. 
The Pharisees are incredulous and they say, are you deceived as well? And then in verses 48 through 49, we see the heart of the Pharisee on pure display. Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. The Pharisees are simply saying, are we endorsing it? As if not, you don't need to believe it. Crowds cursed because they're dumb. The standard of truth here was not what God has said. It, it was rather, what are the important people saying? Not what has God said, but what are the people saying? Nowhere in this did the Pharisees take the approach of, let's search the word and the prophecies. Let's see and hear what this Jesus has to say. Instead, it was, well, what are we saying about it? The Pharisees and their laws were the kind of people who thought they were the only ones who were able to figure out truth. That their opinions and that their thoughts were the highest that there could possibly be, and no one else could even approach that. Frequently in the Pharisees' teachings, they refer to the commoners as the people of the land. And in these teachings, the people of the land were considered to be beneath them and too stupid to have any sort of spiritual understanding. You can't figure it out. You have to rely on some man. A generation before Christ, there was a rabbi who wrote that no common man was pious or ever could be. These are the leaders that were directing the people. And this is a further encouragement to what I was talking about a minute ago about sitting under the right type of leadership. And we look at this and we say, this is crazy. How could anyone put up with this? But we have a strong tendency within us as a people to let other people determine our convictions. And this is wrong. Just because a famous preacher or scientist or politician or celebrity says something doesn't mean it's true. And we can never allow people to be the standard of truth. God's word is true. It must be the standard, not men's opinions. Notice when the Jews allowed the Pharisees to be the ones who determined what was true, they were doomed. And as are we, if we have anything other than the Bible alone to guide our actions in what is right and what is wrong. Multiple places in Scripture do we see that God's Word is the ultimate source of truth, and it is where we should place our hope. Psalm 119, 160 says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 28, it says, And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. And in John 17, what we see is that Jesus ultimately connects our growth in uh, our sanctification with our, directly with our understanding of God's word as truth. Where he says, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. The way that we grow and become more Christ-like is directly related to God's word as truth. So we see that the word is true and therefore it must be our standard and our guide. But so often we fail in this regard. Think about how we conduct ourselves. If we're having a conversation, right, and we're trying to decide what to do on anything, how does it usually start? Usually... What happens is if you're trying to have this conversation, people will kind of look around the room and we'll look for the person who we think has maybe the most wisdom or clout in this area and we go, well, what do you think? And then opinions start to keep coming out, right? And then those, well, what do you think? And then everybody goes around and we all talk about what we think. 
we all want to know what each other thinks instead of first asking, what has God said on the matter? And this is just a very practical way of thinking about it. What is our standard for truth? Far too often we treat God as the ex officio member of our decision-making paradigm in our mind, right? What I'm getting at, y'all know what an ex officio member is, right? You've all, most of y'all are Baptists, you've been on a committee. Ex officio means someone who's just there because they're there by office. And most of the time, they're someone who, because they have that office, they're there and they can give a little input, but they don't really have a vote. And so often, that's how we treat God. We all vote. God's there by nature of being God, but he doesn't really get a vote. When in reality, it is his vote is the only one that matters. God is the determiner of what is true, and we are not. Whenever we diverge from God's truth as the standard, our opinions become the standard. And this is how the world gets to the point where it can't define what a man or a woman is. This is how marriage can be defined as whatever they think. This is how all these problems come about because people have exchanged the truth of God's word for a lie. Let me tell you, if you ever wonder about the state of our world, how it got in the situation it's in, just read Romans 1. Go home and read it. Tell me it doesn't sound like our world today. In Romans 1, the people exchange the truth of God and his word for a lie. They're given over to their lust and the depravity of their mind. They're filled with unrighteousness and ultimately, even though they know what God has said and that they're living in wickedness, they give hearty approval to those acts which are deserving of death. Think about it. Paul was saying the same thing in Romans 1 that we see every day. It's because this is a common problem and this is how division starts when we exchange God's truth as our standard of what we should do and we start inputting our own opinions in that place this is what we have this is what happens when we ask well is anyone else believed before we believe God and his word Therefore, if we want a church that's united, right, if we want to be a a group of people that are united, then we must all live by the same standard of truth. We have to. If our standard isn't the same, we're we're ultimately not going to be able to get along. Our foundation must be on God's word and not man's opinions. We must first ask, what has God said, and allow our opinions and views to be molded to his will rather than seeking to make our own self supreme so we see that when we take anything else and make it the standard of truth and right and wrong then there will be division it's what happened with the pharisees and the jews it is what will happen in countless churches around the world every day when man's opinion becomes supreme god's word ultimately isn't and we will be divided The third and the final contributing factor to division that we see in this passage is in verses 50 and 52, and it's prejudice. Right? We got puny spiritual understanding, we've got a poor standard of truth, and then finally we've got prejudice. Verses 50 through 52, we see Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now, Nicodemus had a very enlightening conversation back with Jesus in John chapter 3. You can go back and and read the chapter if you haven't, and you can go back and listen to those sermons if you're interested. But Jesus and Nicodemus have a very deep 
theological, strong conversation that tells us a great deal. But later on in John, we can see that Nicodemus believes in Christ at some point because he's there to help with Jesus' burial. Nicodemus is here and he says, can't we at least hear him out? And what's their response? Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They basically dare Nicodemus, search the law and see there has never been a prophet from Galilee. These are the teachers of the Jews. These are the great law scholars of the Jews who understand the word, right? When in reality what they have just said is factually, historically, and theologically false. This shows us just how biblically illiterate the Pharisees were. Even the leaders had a lack of spiritual understanding. Even they had a poor standard of truth. Because what we see is they say there's never been a prophet from Galilee. And the Bible says, really? Jonah is from guess where? Galilee. Elijah. You think of Elijah and the great power than this prophet, right? One the Jews certainly would have known where he came from. In fact, the scripture referred to him as what? Elijah the Tishbite. Elijah was from Tishbe, which is in Upper Galilee. Nahum is from Elkosh. Guess where? Galilee. There's also a compelling argument that Hosea was from Galilee. So we have three pretty much for sure and one that's a pretty, pretty good possibility that Hosea was from Galilee. And these are not just prophets. These are guys who were very, very well-known prophets. The point is here, clearly we see that the Pharisees were clearly wrong and clearly unbiblical. They were not faithful to God's word. Multiple prophets had arisen from Galilee. So why in the world would the Pharisees say this? We have two options. Number one is that they're ignorant, which I guess is a possibility. But the Pharisees were people who would have trained in the scriptures their entire life. They were people who would have committed their entire childhood to studying, understanding the languages and the nuance and all the stuff in the scripture that they had. So I don't believe that it's ignorance. In fact, I believe that what we can see here very clearly is that their own opinions are above God's word in their mind, and it's also because they hate anyone from Galilee. You see, the Pharisees hated the Galileans, as you can probably figure out by the fact that they're saying no prophet can be from Galilee, and there's a ton of them. The Galileans were seen as a mixed race by the Pharisees, and what's interesting is that they were considered as outside the authority of the Pharisees. And so the Pharisees hate them. It was a clear example of prejudice. They hate a group of people because they hate them. We recognize that hatred for another group of people is a problem. God hates wickedness, but the Jews simply hated the Galileans because they hated them. And it would seem to me here that the Pharisees hated them because they could not control them. They were seen as less than for their mixed race. They were seen as less than because they weren't following what the Pharisees told them again. And again, this is another example of why God's standard of truth is important. 
When we're relying on men's opinion, men's feelings, they can tell you and feed you ridiculousness like this. But God's truth tells us that we are reconciled in Christ. Galatians 3, Paul is speaking on this. He's talking about salvation and the Jews are trying to make the Gentiles Jews. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And the point that he was making here is that when we are saved by Christ, right, when we're saved by God's grace, that we are ultimately all reconciled. And it's not about who we are as those people, those cultural identities, those things. It's about who we are in Christ. And this is why God's standard of truth is so important, because it tells us that in him we are all found at the foot of the cross, right? We are all people who are in desperate need of his grace. And so Paul's answer to the, the, the prejudices, the, the hatreds between the Jews and the Gentiles, the, this hatred that we see here, the answer to it is that unity is found in the gospel. We see from, throughout Scripture how we are called to demonstrate that gospel by living out the love that we have been shown. But what's so interesting is that the gospel is truly the answer for all of these things. It's the answer for ending division. Now, we know that as sinful people, ultimately there will still be frictions. There will still be times when we get frustrated with one another. But our ultimate unity is found in the gospel and in its truth. In Romans 16, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers. Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now Paul here in this this ending of Romans... He tells them to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles, what? Contrary to the doctrine that they have been taught. Watch out. We should avoid divisions and divisive people. Now, what does that mean? It means we need to avoid that which would seek to divide us on the basis of false doctrine, false teaching, poor standards of truth, and take advantage of whatever spiritual weakness we may have. We are called to stand firm. We do this by being strong in our understanding of the word, keeping it as the standard of truth, and loving those around us as God has called us to, but most importantly, loving his word. Loving him. There can be unity in in nothing else. There's not much I've learned that I can say that will not garner an opinion from someone. Right? Uh, College football season's coming up. Depending on what team you like, man, you can get in a whole bunch of division. Now, the point I say is this, right? If I go to a football stadium, and I'm in there with all these other people, we may agree on the football team we're cheering for, and we can get along for as long as we're watching that game, but then if we start talking about anything else, we probably don't agree, do we? And you can start doing that with just about anything else. The only place that we find true and lasting unity 
is in Christ and his gospel. Because nothing else matters. I mean, if we find our unity in the fact that we were helpless, we, we have the same starting point, right? Helplessly lost, desperately in need of God's grace. We have the same Savior. Ultimately, we have the same mission. We have the same hope of eternity. Guys, the gospel will unite us where no one else will. Nothing else will. And so our hope, as in all things, our hope for salvation is that we put our, all of our trust, all of our faith in Jesus Christ and in his paying the punishment for our sins. Our hope of unity is that as people who have done that, we look back on that and we say, he saved me and he saved them and we are going to work together to grow in our sanctification, to serve him and to sing his praises. So let us go and be united that the world may know who he is. When we are united, we preach the gospel well. Let's go in prayer. Father God, we come before you today, and Lord, we thank you for your gospel. Father, we thank you that in your word it tells us that there was a division unlike any other division, Lord. A division that could not be overcome. And Father, that division was us from you. Our sin separating us, Lord, condemning us. But Father, we thank you that in the gospel you have brought and reconciled us lost, helpless sinners who were desperately and hopelessly divided from you. Lord, you have brought us to yourself through the blood of Christ. So Lord, not only do we pray today that you would heal any division, Lord, we pray that you would also bring to yourself those who are divided from you by their sin. Lord, work in our midst today. Encourage us, strengthen us, and help us to walk in your gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. We would love for you to join us on campus for worship Sunday mornings at 1045. We look forward to seeing you. Have a great week.